You're tuned into This Side of Reality on Totally Radio, a Brighton Digital Festival podcast about digital culture, art, and the human. Presented by CJ Thorpe and created by Vasil Jagalov, Brighton Digital Festival and Totally Radio. Hey everyone, you're listening to This Side of Reality podcast, episode three, Can Data Be Neutral? All the time, we give away increasingly important elements of our public and private lives to automated processes powered by big data and driven by machine learning. Tied with the dominance of social media now, it is drastically affecting the way we interact, how we do politics, how we do business, and generally how we live our lives. So tonight, we're interrogating the idea of neutral data. As well as recording the podcast, we are broadcasting right now on totallyradio.com. We are live from 68 Middle Street in Brighton in front of a small studio audience. Welcome, everyone. I'm CJ Thorpe, and joining me to dig into data neutrality in a messed up world, let's meet our panel of three experts. Hello, uh, my name's Chris Middleton. Um, I'm one of those portfolio people you hear about sometimes and I do a lot of different things for a living but the core of my business is being an IT journalist and writer and public speaker and I major on things like sort of robotics and AI and usually I own a couple of robots as well which I used to start some interesting conversations with with schools and organizations and apart from that I'm also a musician and various other things which so the flexible on-demand world helps me to earn my living in lots of different ways. Hi, I'm uh, Tanya Kant. I'm a lecturer in media and cultural studies uh, with a specialism in digital media at the University of Sussex. Um, My research interests revolve around ideas of identity in the digital age. Uh, My PhD was on algorithmic personalisation, so how uh, personalised media look to know who we are and the kind of political and social implications of what it means to be known by an algorithm. Um, And I'm kind of more interested generally in um, ideas of algorithmic culture and um, the ways in which computation kind of intervenes in everyday life. Hi, my name is um, Aristea Fotopoulou. I'm senior lecturer at the University of Brighton um, in media and communications. I also lead the MA in digital media, culture and society there. I've lost my voice, as you can hear. My research focuses on social transformations that relate to uh, digital technologies and emerging technologies. And I'm currently leading a project that looks into what critical data literacy may mean and the implications that this has for social inclusion in particular. Thanks very much, guys. Uh, Right, so we've got about 45 minutes. Let's get into it. I guess I'd like to start by asking you all, Uh, why you feel we need to talk about big data, machine learning and AI as inherently political and ethical issues. Right, so data are everywhere. Data collection has been a key practice for humans throughout the years. Uh, We have been collecting data in all sorts of practices, archiving knowledge, for example, logging information about personal activities and we list tasks in our everyday lives. We collect numerical data for experiments, for science. We collect um, qualitative data when we do research in the humanities and the social sciences. But what is new with this kind of um, trend and the development in digital technologies is the vast amounts of data that we can gather and how they can be analysed. 
And this is why the, the topic of big data and currently artificial intelligence has gained so much attention in the media and in the academy in the last six years and in the business world, and I think will gain even more traction. Perhaps no, not so much in the term of big data, but more in when it comes to artificial intelligence. And what we've seen is how these are being you know, mentioned in healthcare debates, in governance, in debates and discussions about smart cities and the kind of boundaries of that. Big data have been heralded as the new gold, for example, in business. Projects as the large heart uh, and collider have been kind of, you know, used in the media again and again as really true examples of how we there is a vast demand for uh, large amounts of data. And there are lots of stories that are being kind of circulated in the media. Uh, many scholars have talked about these stories and have kind of commented, especially Kate Crawford has talked about how these are kind of the mythologies that are being built around artificial intelligence and around big data and how, you know, we have not just the practices, but also all these myths that are being kind of circulated around big data. And this can be, you know, quite political and quite um, important because this involve all the kind of rhetorical moves that guide governance and policy. So because these are so becoming so pervasive in our everyday lives and our personal lives, I think this is why it becomes more political and important for us to talk about them because of this pervasiveness. So, for example, when we talk about how populations and people can move across uh, borders, for example, or how um, you know, social inclusion or surveillance can kind of guide um, the, the movement of populations and certain social groups that are being kind of um, thought as or deemed as more uh, dangerous than others. So there are quite a few ethical and political issues that are coming up. Yeah, I mean, to, I, yeah, I mean, all of those issues. And I suppose for me, emphasising that it's increasingly a kind of commercialised practice to research big data or to see it as valuable. So, you know, as Aristo was saying, there's this idea that it's the new gold and it's kind of therefore treated as some kind of natural resource, like oil, but it's, it's not a natural resource. resource. It's something that is manufactured. It's something that's made by human tools and for special intentions. And when we think about, for me, the um, ubiquity of free services online that are underpinned and rely on exchanging data for for services for users then you know it becomes a real kind of pressing concern for me to think about what it means that big data is driving our web experience we we don't pay for the web our data pays for it so what does that mean for our engagement of it um i think One of the things that makes me a little unusual as a journalist is I like writing about the ethical and societal impacts of these things. And I think it's important to do that. And one of the reasons is that there's a big mismatch between what the industry thinks it's doing, the technology sector, the AI sector, the robotic sector, that a lot of the people in that industry genuinely think they're making assistive technologies to complement society and to make the world a better place. You, You often won't meet a nicer group of people who are more, you know, they're very interested in diversity, they're very interested in sustainability. But on the buy side, um, all they're hearing is, we can cut costs 
you know, we can get rid of people, we can, we can maximise the amount of profits we're making for our shareholders and so on. So that's one angle of the debate. Uh, another one is I think the first thing that people automate isn't business function, it's their assumptions about the world and their, and their viewpoint on the world. And so when people set out to, to embark on these big data programmes and their AI programmes, they're gathering data about specific things, behind that are already a lot of assumptions and a lot of decisions that they've already made. So in a sense, they're automating, you know, they're looking to, for proof of a decision they've sort of already made, in a sense. And the CIA recently, for example, has embarked on a slightly crazy-sounding big data project to analyse whether people who have tattoos are more likely to commit certain crimes. So if you take a big bang approach to that project, you know, it's kind of rewind as we can do with the universe to see what must have happened to start the universe off, there must have been an assumption in there that people with tattoos commit crimes. That's implicit in the project. And yet they've created this massive surveillance and sort of, you know, um, data gathering exercise based on an assumption. And you can take that you know, and apply that to all sorts of different types of organisations. They're automating their assumptions, you know. And so that's something that needs to be looked at. And there needs to be transparency around what are the assumptions that they've made, why have they made them, what data is being gathered, for what purpose. And and ultimately, if you think about it, all all algorithms are political, in a sense, because they they have people's intentions built into into the programming. And so, you know, what were those intentions? What are they looking for? Why is it, you know, being embarked upon? These are all very interesting areas. In my filter bubble, we're becoming aware of the filter bubble. So are people generally becoming more aware of this? And does that in some way start to solve the problem? Or are they not? Is that just within my filter bubble that people have found the phrase filter bubble? Um, Why do people trust big data and algorithms? And do they still? Are we becoming more aware, would you say? There's different studies that, sh- that are, uh, on different platforms, even on the same platform, there's been studies of Facebook that some of them have said, oh, people are mostly aware of the filter bubble or mostly aware that, that there's algorithms um, tweaking their experience of it. Um, and then there's other studies still that are coming out and saying, well, actually, that's not true. So we're still in that flux stage where, um, where nobody's quite sure. And one of my research interests at the moment is what it what that does, the, the kind of partial knowledge. Like you said, you, you know that the filter bubble's there and you know that some of your friends know about the filter bubble. But we don't, we don't know the extent of the filter bubble. We don't know exactly what's being personalised and when. We don't know what ads are targeted to us compared to the ones that are generic. We don't know how. So that kind of partial knowledge is generating all kinds of weird anxieties for people. You know, I, in, I've, had, um, I've done interviews where... I've had uh, participants tell me that they think Facebook is telling them to lose weight because they must, Facebook must have profiled them as overweight. And the reality being that they've been delivered a very impersonal, generic weight loss ad because they're a woman and because they're aged 24 to 30. And yet, because they're of this partial awareness of the filter bubble, it kind of triggers all of these anxieties about, well, Facebook must be, tell- must be telling me I'm overweight. Um, and therefore I am, kind of thing. So there's that kind of, yeah, I'm interested in just what uncertainty does. I think also one of the risks is that we're increasingly living in a world of surface rather than depth. But a, a phrase I hear a lot in business journalism is people living in silos and that that was a bad thing. 
But whereas, in fact, silos often refer to expertise that people have gathered about certain things. And once you come out of those sort of holes that people used to live in, of expertise and you know, very, very focused environments they lived in, and start living on the surface, you, you pick up a lot of information that's very general. Um, you know, and the filter bubble can, can you know, help in a sense. But one of the problems is that there was an amazing um, thing that um, IFL Science, the website, did a couple of years ago. Uh, and it ran a Facebook campaign around this news story that, um, that uh, cannabis contains alien DNA from outer space. This was the, the story that um, IFL Science ran a story about. And it was fascinating to see because they published this story just on Facebook. And it's got tens of thousands of likes and all the comments underneath were, were either, wow, what an amazing story, or B, what, what is this Syrian science website doing publishing this trash? But what nobody did, almost no one, maybe one or two percent of people, was click through to the actual story. And what the actual story was, was an article, a very good article, about how people never read articles. <laughs> and they just read the headlines and click like and support it. So one of the problems with the filter bubble is, is that when, when we're only getting partial information. We're, we're seeing things on the surface and we're liking them and we're sharing them, but we're not necessarily even reading them, and that's incredibly dangerous, I think. Is this then nefarious? Is this um, something that we should be concerned about as a deliberate thing that is malignant, or is this just almost a kind of a byproduct or a symptom of people and organisations doing something that's fundamentally quite noble, which is like business or trying to make some money or, or trying to offer people a wider set of tools. I think we should be looking at uh, how our trusting data has been really ingrained and has a very long history. It's not something that has happened overnight just because now we call it big data. So historically, we, we kind of... First of all, there is this kind of notion that the data that are being collected passively are going to be more objective and are going not to have any kind of values or any kind of biases, and that they somehow are going to you know, reveal some hidden truth, right? And this is something that is really deeply ingrained in the beliefs that we have over the objectivity of science. So this goes back many, many years, like in quantitative methods and you know, of inquiry, of scientific inquiry, we kind of tend to think that, oh, the statistics will tell us the truth, right? So the data are there to be collected and we somehow will do the analysis and all the biases will be within the analysis, but the data will tell the truth, right? <coughs> so this is something, you know, that, you know, scholars in the past have, especially feminist science and technology scholars, have talked about how, you know, how um, the interests of middle-class white men are coming into, you know, the design and the innovation and the products and, in, in, you know, and how technology is kind of progressing. And this is perhaps now reflected in how we think about data and how we think about the stories we read and the, the things that come through in social media, for example. So now... You know, big data have, of course, there is a huge economic imperative behind them, but somehow there is this kind of assumption and hope that they will lead to these fantastic scientific breakthroughs almost magically, just because we, we have access to these huge amounts of data. And there is this kind of notion that by sharing as people, as individuals, by sharing more data, we will somehow lead to these scientific breakthroughs. And you see that, especially when it comes to medical um, trials and 
you know, people who willingly will give more data about their um, health kind of stories because they think they will altruistically somehow contribute to a breakthrough in certain really important diseases. Um, and I've actually written something which is coming out uh, next year, which is about the quantified self and how we have kind of progressed from the networked self, thinking of ourselves as connected to, into this kind of notion of the quantified self where and how this sense of sharing for altruism, you know, the kind of notion that this will make us better people, right, because we are doing the right thing for the next person whom we don't know. And this kind of motivates us to, to give even more data out there, more personal data. And this is something that, you know, of course, corporations really, um, you know, grab on and they even cultivate it. So that's, you know, that's back to your question about the trust and our, our kind of trust in algorithms and this kind of um, objectivity of, of data. Do marginalised groups trust more? Well, marginal, marginalised groups may not even have any awareness that their data are being used and manipulated in certain ways. So one, for example, you know, the scandals, the recent scandals where you had like Hewlett Packard not identifying non-white hues of skin colour or, you know, um, other kinds of, you know, uses um, and, you know, predictive policing where people are, are kind of, you have, um, um, you have algorithms that are kind of uh, treating black populations as more kind of um, susceptible to, to behave in a criminal way in the future and kind of profiling in this kind of uh, policing way. These, these communities don't even, are not even aware. Also, the scandal with Amazon not delivering to area zip codes where you have black gator, gators in America. These people didn't know about this. They just couldn't get their stuff delivered, right? Um, yeah, I'm not convinced we're even at that stage yet where we could talk about trust. Or, like, we do, we do kind of... There's this kind of reluctant trust, right? Because we have to... Um, there's been a report in the, U- the US about the amount, you know, the vast majority of people have some awareness that they're being tracked, you know, that their data is being monitored. They don't like it, but they like free services, so they reluctantly um, say yes. And so when we're talking about, um, you know, minority or marginalised groups, I think to talk about trust almost is putting the the onus on them, you know, when actually, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of examples where there, it doesn't matter if you trust it or not, you're in the system and the system will do, will do as it will. The, the assumption that people often make with AI, which you were talking about earlier, was that because it's a computerised system, because it's data, it must be somehow correct, it must be, you know, it's science, it must be correct, you know, it, it, the computer must be neutral. But what people forget with artificial intelligence is that the vast majority of it relies on human programming. It needs human training data. And so the data that is input long before the system itself is up and running, long before the algorithms are written even, is what is making the decisions in effect. And that data can be biased at source. It could, be, it could have been biased for decades. Uh, and in, in fact, the legal system is a good example of this. Um, in, in America, there's a, uh, an algorithm called Compass that's used in the American legal system. And it's used in sentencing Advice, you know, so it actually gives judges advice on whether somebody's likely to reoffend, all of this kind of thing, or whether somebody's not likely to reoffend, and so it actually affects how, you know, the rest of their lives may pan out. But it's already been demonstrated that a lot of the data that Compass relies on 
has been tainted from decades of the American legal system treating ethnic minorities very unfairly or regarding them as more likely to commit crimes. And so this bias is becoming automated within the American legal system and it's actually now affecting sentencing advice. You know. And this, this problem of, of biased training data is, is, is a very serious issue and, and racial bias is, is very much a problem within that. There have been examples where, um, um, for example, MIT developed a facial recognition system that was unable to recognise African-American people um, because the training data had been compiled within a closed group of white males. 83% of people in the American technology sector are male and, and the vast majority of them are white and young. And so it had simply hadn't occurred to them to create training data outside of their own closed group. And this system was distributed worldwide before an African-American student at MIT said you know, it doesn't recognise me, it doesn't know who I am. So, you know, it's a big problem. Before I start asking about um, uh, attempting to kind of disrupt or subvert this norm, can I ask a little bit about what the effect is on our sense of self and the disparities between the kind of the perceived self and how we anticipate the self? So the, the kind of uncertainty that I was talking about, that it generates this this idea that we have a an algorithmic self um, that is kind of haunting us or following us around the web um, generates, I think, a a kind of negotiation of what we think our identity is. So there's this phrase that um, uh, Butcher uses about um, seeing yourself through the eyes of the algorithm, which I I find really compelling, having to start thinking about who you are because, you know, Facebook has told you this or because you're... Um, you've seen a profile of yourself and it's, and it's you know, right or it's wrong. It doesn't really matter in that you still have to make those decisions and still have to kind of confront it. I'm, I'm starting a research project on um, the clear blue fertility ads that if you are um, 25 to 30, I can see a couple of people nodding. Um, if, you're, if, if, you, if, you, if the computer identifies you as female, if YouTube identifies you as female, and you're 25 to 30 and you live in the UK, you will be delivered um, ads for clear blue fertility tests when you go on, for, uh, when you go on YouTube. And, it, and the, the irony being that there's not, there's, it's not personalised at all. You know, it's a massive blanket assumption that if, you, if, you, if the computer, the, uh, the database, YouTube and Google's database has identified you as um, a fertile woman, then therefore you should be thinking about having kids, you know, and that it's those kind of reflections back at you that I think are affecting how we see our identities. I mean, it, that's, it's not to say that nobody has ever looked at a woman before and said, have, are you having children yet? But it, I find it quite remarkable that in the 21st century, a video sharing platform is the, is the main source of that question for me. I get asked that YouTube asks me on a on a weekly basis when I'm teaching my students in class. I'll have to sit through a fertility test advert, and all of the students are laughing. You know, it's this kind of new confrontation in these weird scenarios where you don't you you, you don't normally have to think about your identity. That for me is particularly interesting. But it's a fascinating example because it's almost replacing something that we'd already come to understand as a stereotype, exactly. which is badgering parents that yeah. will focus on women when they reach a certain age. Absolutely. It's seen as rude to do that at dinner parties, but apparently YouTube, it's fine. 
YouTube gets away with quite a lot <laughs> yeah. of things that are rude at dinner parties. Yeah. yeah, that's really good. Uh, is, this, is there something about this being interim, though, that we just aren't... So back in the days of advertising, we all learnt to become savvy to adverts and it kind of became almost like a nuclear arms race of adverts got more sophisticated and then we grow up more sophisticated and we're able to blank them out. Is it just that we, the future generations, will just learn to... And, and because you've used a, a gender example, I, I'm really hesitant to say, mm-hmm. we'll just learn to ignore it, which is a terrible thing. But is that something that... Uh, is, it, does it normalise over a period of time not in an unhealthy way? I just don't know yet. You know, it just seems like we're still going through these stages of of trust in data. You know, firstly, trusting that it's complex when sometimes it's not very complex. You know, I think... I want. I, I think um, it might end up that we stop thinking about personalization so much. You know, we, we'll stop assuming that we have an algorithm itself that's following us around the web, for example, because the tr- as much as I'm interested in these ideas of um, digital identity and the, algorith- the algorithmic person that is kind of reflected, it's, it's not really true. It's not really true that there's a holistic version of you or me sitting in a database somewhere you know most agencies most corporations don't care about you they don't care who you are they care about selling you stuff and so I I I think there might become more public awareness of this idea that it's not quite as personalized as we think but I I mean I don't know I'm just speculating really I I think um we tend to think of Google as being a, you know, the world's information access platform, at least we think of that in the West. But really, Google's the world's biggest advertising company. Uh, and that's its sort of a pinhole through which we look at a vast landscape of data. Um, and one of the problems with that is, is that you know, we, we, Google helps us to find information, at least in theory. But the reality is that a lot of information is changed to make it easier for Google to find. And this is a problem that's happening within the publishing sector, that you know that publishing content is being routinely changed, facts are being altered in order to make it friendly to to Google through search engine optimization. You know, I've written loads of stories that have been changed by editors and stuffed full of, say, friendly f- uh, phrases. You know, so the very information that's going into Google is is being altered in order to help Google rank it. You know, and that's another problem. We already know that we're being tracked and our data used. We sign up to all sorts of free services in exchange for it. It's all about consuming, although we are now the product as much as we are the consumer. Uh, what are political implications of this of, uh, of this granting of access so universally? Can you see a can you see any form of positive change coming out of it politically? Tim Berners Lee has a good idea which I'll just share very briefly. I spoke to him a couple of years ago, and he was saying that, you know, we all give away far too much of our data, you know, it's something that he feels slightly responsible for. And um, he was saying that we, we ought to, to take back ownership of our data. And one proposal for doing this is to create a personal API where everyone sort of has a personal application programming interface and says, I license my data to this organisation on these terms, but you cannot use it for these purposes. You, you may use my personally identifiable data for this cause and that cause because I support those, but you may not use it for this, this or this. You know. And all of this permission, this sort of digital rights, in a sense, for data would be embedded in your profile. And so any organisation that interfaces with you online through any platform would then 
come up against this wall of, you know, you can do this, but you can't do that. And it's an interesting idea. I mean, it's problematic in lots of ways, but at least it could, you know, maybe it's too late now because the data's all out there. You know, it's far too late to rewind the clock and come up with a, an alternative. But it's an interesting idea. It is an interesting idea. So I'd like to ask Aristia, you're planning to utilise a sort of more varied approach in your critical data literacy project uh, to engage communities with the political and ethical issues around data use and collection. So how can data become more relevant, more accessible and kind of lean towards being a social good at this point? Or is it too late for that? And in what ways do we need to sort of become savvier in our relationship? And is that something we can even do that I'll throw that out to all three of you afterwards? That can we just be more savvy? That's, these are very good questions, and these are the questions that the project is trying to answer, basically. First of all, how can we raise awareness for community organisations about the risks and the benefits of big data and all sorts of kind, all kinds of data, and to gain some basic skills, some basic insights and skills of analysing data that, they, that are of interest to these particular community groups for their own purposes and interests of their communities, how to enable engagement from the bottom up with um, using big data. Um, but more importantly, I'm more interested in, like you said earlier, and you also mentioned that earlier, um, we, you know, we, we kind of have access to all sorts of data and we personalise, you know, we have access to this personalised um, shadows of ourselves um, data shadows of ourselves, but then we get some kind of information from different platforms. For example, I did some research around Fitbit and I looked at the interface and what the interface allows you to get back from all the information that you log in about your fitness data, for example. And there is a particular type of literacy and skills that you need to have and you need to acquire gradually by using these kinds of devices that have to do with understanding all the graphs and the visuals Right, so there are these these conditions that are kind of being built into in order to to get access to your data to get some understanding of what it means for you um, so what i 'm trying to do with with this is to see how communities can actually get access to open data sets um, data sets that are maybe valuable for them, for example, if it 's like um, you know um, um, uh, um, mobility or transportation kind of um, charity, they may find, you know, uh, data around how the buses operate or how the taxis operate in the city, very valuable for them. Um, I'm more interested at this point. We're more working with um, women's organisations um, locally here in Brighton and Hove, um, and I'm more interested in seeing how they can actually create stories from this data. So not just gaining some kind of technical literacy some technical skills about analysing data, but actually making things meaningful for them and for their communities. How can they tell a story? How can they write um, a journal article or a blog post, for example? How can they visualise the data? How can they you know, tell, diff- tell stories in different kind of ways using some kind of creative media, for example, and make this data, like interpret this data in ways that make meaning for others, for people who actually will use these stories for advocacy or for other reasons in order to make some claims and make their lives better and empower their communities, basically. So in a way, you know, turning the power back to the people in some way. 
Yeah, see, that does sound really positive as a sort of a grassroots yeah. action that people could take at a local level that could then spread. So it's a local action that could be repeated. It could be scaled in some way. Um, is that the is that the best way to proceed, or should we be thinking in kind of more non-violent direction action type terms of actually trying to disrupt this this big data situation more aggressively? I mean, there's there's various kind of political grassroots uh, movements towards resisting. I don't know if I would call them violent, but there there's there's some really interesting work on. Um, obfuscation where you, you 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 dump all the data that you can at the systems and in doing so the the data loses its value because it's it's you know there's just too much and it's half of it's true half of it's not true some of it's you know completely false whatever so you, you start to you know flood the system again I, I and I'm I don't want to like sound like a, a luddite that is completely anti-data because I'm not and I think that is a really valuable to give people the tools and the knowledge to be able to create their own data sets. But we just have to be really careful about who you can ask for it. You know, you can't really use Google's data sets or APIs to do any academic research. It's just not, they're they're not very well designed. They're designed for businesses to use, to do that. And so you end, you know, with, with my own research, I've had to be really careful about where I get my research and my data from because I'd, I'd have ended up, um, adhering to the logic of Google in order to critique Google, and you know, and it just it it just wouldn't wouldn't have worked for me. The other the other thing that I that I think is really important is to look at legislation and the and the laws around this stuff because it feels still like some of the laws around um, spending uh, electoral spending online. You know, you've got the public bodies that are responsible for print and TV spending, electoral spending, saying the internet's not got nothing to do with us. So, you know, who, who has it got to do with? Who are we going to turn to to legislate from the top as well as take control from the bottom? GDPR, um, European Data Protection Regulations, coming in and will be uh, put into UK law next year, regardless of Brexit. Um, they will help as well to some degree because they address things like fair use and whether or not, um, and this could have a big impact on the advertising sector, which I don't think even the advertising sector is aware of uh, in a lot of cases, that you know, the data gathering has got to have you know, a, a positive, socially useful purpose. It's got to, you know, you're not allowed to gather data for, unless you can justify why you're doing it. There's going to be a benefit to that person. So I think there's an awful lot of interesting, uh, and plus the, the right to be forgotten is, is part of GDPR as well, the right to have all of your data sort of removed from systems if you, if you, want, if you want them to, to remove it. So there's a lot of interesting things happening. And the European Union is, is surprisingly um, good at that stuff. It, it, um, it's sort of at war, in a sense, with America over data protection. And there's two very different models of, um, of how data should be protected and data transfer, data sovereignty, all of these issues. The European Union is very much more interested in how citizens benefit from this than, than it's given credit for, actually. Um, all three of you are nodding to that. So does that mean that we definitely should be leaning towards a, a European model of things rather than an American mo- model of things if we had a choice? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the new laws that are coming in are going to be really interesting to see how they play out because they're going to fundamentally change how uh, the assumptions made about giving up your data for a free service. So I'm going to, yes watching with a close eye to see how what kind of loopholes end up being put in 
that's that's my worry. Yeah. Well, we're living under those regulations. Regardless, you know, we just are, so that they will be in UK law anyway. So, oh, so that's uh, great. What people, that's a positive with, thing. Yes, if people yeah. prefer the American model, they're stuck with the EU one. This is where nobody wants to ask a question. <laughs> I was thinking about what you said about Clear Blue, because I get their ads, like, every day, I would say, like, all the time. But I also get... Um, it's like really random tiger tiger ads and stuff like that and like red bull and i just wondered what you think what makes me get a clear blue ad one day and then a vodka absolute an hour later <laughs> like seems a bit of a contrast it's a great mixer yeah well <laughs> they seem to think so i mean i i i don't personally know and i think a lot of researchers are having trouble getting to the kind of specifics because they're really closely guarded secrets you know google just doesn't want to tell us how it works it's in their advertising interest to keep it um opaque their 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 strategies and i've got a feeling from having spoken to insiders in the advertising industry where if if it was to come out this isn't google this is another um, uh, another firm, I can't remember the firm, um, but the colleague that was telling me was like, the two most valuable demographics, identities, um, pregnant women, the second most, because they, you've got a consumer and a mini consumer, and it's a time of very high consumption. You know, you've got to buy loads of new staff, you're, you've got worried new parents um, looking to, you know, spend the money to make sure that everything's fine. And um, I think it was people with lung problems was the number one so that they could sell the data to approach lawyers who can then do stuff with it. So, you know, when you hear these stories and you think, well, you know, this is from someone that was working in the industry and it Firstly, strikes me just how generic it is. You know, it's not really about what you're really personally interested in. It's about getting it right 75% of the time. Um, there's, there's been a, a few research um, studies done on this that it's really not about trying to find the uniqueness of you. It's much more about putting you into broader demographics that may or may not pay off. As long as it pays off more than it doesn't pay off, it's done its job as a marketing system. So that's all that that's I mean, that's not all data. It's certainly not scientific data, but in some models that's how it works as far as I know. Um, artificial intelligence is, is interesting because a lot of it now is what's called a so called black box solution. And what that means is that even the people who are building the systems don't understand how they work. Um, because they're so neural networks are now so complex that um, Artificial intelligence systems are now producing results that even the people who design the systems don't know how those results came out of the system. So, um, you know, that's, I suppose you could say that's reason to be optimistic in a sense, but also reason to be uh, kind of worried about the extent to which decisions are being made by systems which even the designers don't understand how the, the output has, has, has arisen. Just, I just uh, remember this, uh, there's this research that shows that. Um, women get less ads about high-paying jobs, right? So you, you will never get this ad of a high-paying job because the system somehow has profiled, as, profiled you as a woman, right? There's no way to find out how or why this is and how the bias went, came into 
you know, how the advertiser decided to do that, but they say something that is happening, right? So, you know, there are all sorts of ideas and gendered biases that go in that, and there's no way to, you know, like Tanya says, this is so fragmented, it's not just one image of you. One of the types of business that will actually be targeting people very specifically is the insurance sector, because the insurance sector is very interested in, in not paying people money. And so it's, you know, a lot of AI systems are already being designed to predict people's likes and dislikes or predict what kind of uh, person somebody is. Um, I'm sure there was that new story recently about facial recognition systems being used to determine whether or not somebody's more likely to be gay or straight, for example. Um, A lot of these types of research programs going on. The insurance industry is really interested in this stuff. Because it can, if it can look at you and make a decision about who you are, whether you're likely to have a particular type of illness, whether you're likely to have an inherited illness of some sort, you know, whether you know, the facial recognition system can determine whether or not you're susceptible to heart problems or, or lung problems. You know, um, and so a lot of these biases maybe become, you know, in, been built into the systems that are being used by insurance companies, for example, and will be designed to do that. And that's a very troubling area because there's no transparency over how these systems work. Yeah, I have the same responsibility as, say, the legal system to make any presumptions. They can just they can profit, they can be as racist or as misogynist as they like, mm. or prejudiced towards different lifestyles as they like. Well, it, well but they're still like, they're still um, accountable legally. So it's interesting that that. There sh- I think there should be more demands made on are you legally allowed to do this? You know, it's, it is illegal to discriminate um, against, you know, certain uh, minorities. And, and, and that, I think that avenue needs to be explored more and, and I, I think up, uh, taken up more. It has, um, it, there was a case where they sued in Texas for algorithmically profiling um, people from poorer neighbourhoods. And and they were because it's discrimination, you know, and and it doesn't matter if an algorithm's done it; it's still discrimination. So, so yeah, that might actually mm. be a route for pushing back in mm. some sense, yeah. some instances. Well, it does, but in most cases, what the corporations say is it wasn't intentional, <laughs> right? So they kind of hide behind this kind of black black boxing, where they can just claim, "I don't know, I don't know, it's beyond my control now," which is why, you know, really, it is important to have regulation. Um, next question. <laughs> Just um, yes, I was going to ask, uh, the current paradigm is, is, is predicated upon um, one or two very large companies uh, collecting all the data uh, in, in a very monop- monopolistic way. Um, is there any um, move or is any sort of, um, sort of possibility that, of moving d- down to much more of a decentralised um, collection of data? So, so, so um, blockchain being one of these, or look at, looking at um, the encryption of, 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 of data as it's as it's been generated, stored, or, you know, sort of maybe in, in, a, in a large server farm or whatever, but can only be accessed at, at, at the point. I know you mentioned it at, at a certain level, you know, sort of an API, a personal API being given and so on. But, the, the, you know, sort of taking it even one step further, placing it onto the blockchain or something like that so, as a way of, of taking control back at this point anyway. It's a very complicated question. Um, I, I don't accept the idea that, you know, that some companies have a monopoly in a sense on data because you know all sorts of organizations gather data for all sorts of things you know and they can gather data from their own research or in primary research um i guess the the the, the challenge is isn't that some organizations google and facebook in particular are, are so wide-reaching and so broadly adopted and so many different organizations plug into them 
that they become, you know, sort of monopoly in, in effect because the, they own the platform. It's the platform, really, that's the monopoly, if you like, rather than the ownership of the data. It's the platform that you're forced to engage with, and Amazon's another one. Um, because Amazon Web Services underlie so many different types of business. I mean, I, I like the idea of the personal API, actually. Um, the, the idea of... of um, permission, you know, of, of owning the permission, uh, you know, and the fact that organisations would have to interface with you whether they like it or not and have to do so on your terms. I think the question is whether or not it's too late to do something like that and whether it's even possible to build something like that that organisations would have to use. I don't know whether, you know, I don't know what you think about this, whether it's possible to even build the infrastructure to, to enable that because it would in, in involve, you know, a society legislating for that to happen, you know, a group of countries legislating for that to happen and so on. But it's an interesting idea to sort of take back. Blockchain does certainly render that technologically possible, doesn't yes. it? Yes. And to yes. encompass everyone on earth in a way. Yes, there but are it people who are experimenting building personal API platforms and there are people who have, who have floated them in a very sort of, um, you know, minor way. And it's out there as an idea, certainly. Do we then need a scorched earth policy about all the data that's left behind once we jump on board? Do we need to build the API, put everyone on it who wants to be on it, and give everyone access to it, and then absolutely destroy other, every other source of data that's ever existed? <laughs> well, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, I think also we're going to have to rethink the web economy, though, as well. Like, it's not just a data thing. It's our mindset to how we access news, for example. You know, there's been a massive shift from paying for newspapers to expecting not to pay, you know, feeling indignant about paying for your information. So how are we going to marry our insistence on, which is not a bad thing, you know, to want to have free access, because, you know, especially public service access, but also um, not give up your data. Because at the moment, some of these resisting um, strategies they rely on other people giving up their data, you know, to more to, to, for the web to function more broadly. So how how can we all resist together without having to throw certain people under the bus while other people kind of enjoy anonymity, for example? I was talking to a Brighton developer company recently, and they were suggesting that the way to do it is to get some big organisations to actually back this from a sort of CSR standpoint and say we support this idea, we support the idea of giving power of your data back to you. And, and if that could, you know, be made to, to happen, if that would create a sort of snowball, uh, sort of like those organisations in the States that, you know, have this policy of, of their own employees have to give a certain amount of time and a certain amount of their IP and a certain amount of their own, um, the organisation's money to social causes. You know, if you could approach it as a social cause, you know, that might be one way of doing it. Thanks ever so much, guys. That's been absolutely fantastic. Um, unfortunately, that is all we have time for uh, from... Brighton Digital Festival, totallyradio.com and Lo-Fi Arts. You've been listening to This Side of Reality, our podcast about tech-led culture, art and the human. Thank you very much to our panellists, Chris Middleton, Tanya Kant and Aristea Fotopoulou. And thank you guys very much for listening. Uh, I'm CJ Thorpe. This Side of Reality is curated and produced by Vasil Jagalov for Brighton Digital Festival with support from Daniel Nathan and Annika Warburton at totallyradio.com. And we were kindly hosted here at 68 Middle Street by Clearleft. Um, if you've enjoyed this side of reality and found it useful, please subscribe online, leave us positive comments. Thanks very much and uh, talk to you next time. Thank you.
You're listening to Totally Radio. A different soundtrack. <laughs> 